The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. If you were not here last week, we were blessed tremendously. Look on your bulletin there. This is a beautiful picture. Some people fear this, that their picture might end up on the bulletin someday. But anyway, there's we had a baptism last week, five folks giving their testimony. That was amazing. But we did do Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, just so you know. And that's why we're picking up at verse 15, going through 26. Uh, if you haven't been with us, just to bring you up to speed, what we're covering today, we're going through the book of Acts from beginning to end, written by Luke, the associate of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Luke was not an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus, but he got much of this information firsthand from eyewitnesses, the Apostles, Barry, and others. And also the Holy Spirit of God moved upon Luke as he wrote this divine account. Uh, up to this point, we covered, we, we picked up at the beginning of chapter 1 where Jesus was still alive on earth, risen from the dead, gathered his apostles, gave them instruction, said, wait here in Jerusalem. And in a very short period of time, the promise will be fulfilled. The promise will come. Stay here till the promise comes. Jesus was referring to the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit who would literally begin to live inside them like never before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which God does even today for believers. When you believe the Spirit comes, resides in you, lives in you, and gives you supernatural power. Dunamis, we talked about that. The same power of the Spirit of God that created the world out of nothing and even rose Jesus from the dead. And so uh, Jesus commissioned his apostles, wait so that you might be empowered. Then he ascended into heaven and was caught up by the angels. In a physical body, a resurrected body, he will return in like manner. Someday the apostles, in their obedience, went back to Jerusalem. They're praying. They're waiting. There are approximately 120 faithful saints who have been waiting, who have been gathered since the death of or the resurrection of Christ. And now these 120 will remain faithful, continually praising God in the temple says Luke 24, and continually praying with one another in the upper room and other places, says Acts chapter 1. And in preparation for God launching the worldwide ministry of the apostles, some work and final preparation needs to be done. And that is God needs to replenish the vacancy left by Judas who died. Jesus chose 12 apostles during the course of his ministry out of the many disciples that he had, hundreds of disciples. But after prayer and seeking the wisdom of the Father, he selected 12 of those disciples to fulfill God's perfect plan and extend the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so Jesus chose 12. There couldn't be 13. There couldn't be 11. There had to be 12 according to God's divine plan. We mentioned that a little bit last week. Before we go back to Acts chapter 1, by way of introduction, this is really important because if you look at the sermon title, Replacing Judas, that's what this whole account is about, verses 15 to 26. So we need to understand, well, why did Judas have to be replaced? One of the most specific answers in, is in Matthew 27. I want you to turn there, or sorry, Matthew uh, 19. Matthew 19. This is uh, getting close to the end of Jesus' public ministry. He's kind of en route 
to the cross. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to die on the cross as a sacrificial death. His apostles don't understand that yet. It hasn't sunk in, but he's trying to prepare them. Jesus is doing some public teaching towards the end of his ministry. He's doing a ministry in Galilee. He's getting ongoing hostility. There are some who are interested. There are some who want to be loyal. There are some who want to follow and obey, and that's what Matthew 19 is about. Various reactions to the teaching in the person of Christ. His disciples, or his 12 apostles, are with him while he's doing this public teaching. They're watching everything in his shadows. They're observing the resistance and the hostility of the Pharisees. They're witnessing the miracles that he does. They're witnessing some who are faithful, the very few who love Jesus and want to follow. They witness some who struggle and want to follow, yet can't and seem to have a compromised faith. And they got one foot in loyalty towards Christ, and they have one foot in the world or fulfilling their own agenda. So that's what's happening in chapter 19. The apostles, again, are watching all of this interaction. And Jesus makes some amazing, even scandalous and troubling statements towards the end of chapter 19. And the apostles are aghast at Jesus' public teaching and statements when he says things like Matthew 19:24 again i said to you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of god and when the disciples or really the apostles heard what jesus said they were astonished they didn't understand it jesus what do you, what do you mean what are you saying verse 26 and looking upon his apostles jesus said to them with men this is impossible but with god all Things are possible. Still somewhat ignorant, Peter responds as the spokesperson of the apostles says to Jesus, Behold, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. They probably have two years of history under the belt of following Christ. We've left everything, Jesus. What then will be there for us? What do we get in this selfless sacrifice? We've given you everything. What is it? In it for us, there is something in it for the 12 apostles, and that's verse 28. This is absolutely key to everything we're going to talk about today. And Jesus said to them, and that's the 12, truly I say to you, this is divine revelation. You can count on it. It will be fulfilled to the T as the Lord Jesus declares, truly I say to you that you who have followed me, it is conditional among the 12 who are faithful, who follow me and continue to follow me and persevere in your following me. That's what he meant. You who have followed me in the regeneration, regenerate compound word, Genesis is the Greek word, and then a prefix again, Genesis again, the regeneration. What does that mean? Uh, renewal. Uh, the regeneration, the uh, making that which is dead come to life once again, the restoration. And what's it talking about? It's God's going to do Genesis again, Genesis chapter 1 before the curse again. What he's talking about is in the future, the millennium, the 1,000 years of paradise on earth when Jesus reigns as king of kings in fulfillment of scriptures, and the curse will be removed for a 1,000 years where Jesus reigns literally on the earth. This is Old Testament theology. That will be fulfilled. That's what he's talking. That is the regeneration. The apostles know this. They are Jewish. They were raised in the synagogue. They know the Hebrew scriptures. They've been taught in seminary by Jesus for three years. 
They should know this. At this point, before the resurrection, it was clouded. It was distorted. They didn't quite understand until after the resurrection what Jesus was saying here, but that's what he meant. In the regeneration, in the future, Peter, there is something in it for the 12 apostles in the, in the millennium. The regenerate, it's going to be awesome. In accordance with all of those prophets in the Old Testament. And in this generation, and in this doing of Genesis again, the replenishing of the earth, when the, ro- the, the desert will blossom like the rose of Sharon, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, when Jesus is reigning as king, fulfilling even prophecies in the New Testament. Here, Jesus is saying this to the 12 apostles. One of the 12 apostles was John the Apostle who's listening to this. I guarantee at this point, John didn't know what Jesus was talking. He didn't get it. Wait, the regeneration in the future, the Son of Man sitting on his throne. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Well, that same John who was in utter ignorance when the statement was made after the resurrection, after the ascension, after Pentecost, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle, at the end of his life, wrote Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and John literally wrote this promise down as he was led by the Holy Spirit when John understood in the future when Christ sits on his glorious throne and all of his saints with him, and they co-reign with him with the rod of iron ruling over the nations. And every believer, every saint, every Christian saved during the church age will be with Jesus sitting on his throne during the millennium, reigning with him in glory, and there will be 12 special thrones designated for the faithful apostles, one of which will be John the Apostle. And so in the generation yet to come, when the Son of Man will sit on his throne, his glorious throne, you also, you 12 apostles, you, Peter, if you remain faithful. Judas is standing there. Jesus knows Judas ain't going to be there. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you also, you men, shall sit upon 12 thrones there had to be 12 not 11 not 13 judging the 12 tribes of israel and then you go through the gospels matthew mark luke and john about 20 times the 12 becomes a technical phrase the 12 apostles the 12 disciples the the 12 apostles of jesus they are very specific apostles it's a finite number of apostles. It's a designated group of apostles. And it had to be 12 by God's divine appointment. This is a promise from Jesus. This is a prophecy of Jesus. It must be fulfilled. They get to the millennium. There's only 12 apostles who served faithfully during the early church. Jesus' promise is erroneous, misleading, unfulfilled. There needs to be 12. So go back to Acts chapter 1. So it wasn't just coincidental. Oh, we, we lost one. We need another one. And I, like I said last week, they're not replacing Judas because an apostle died. Because every one of the legitimate 11 apostles is going to die and they are not replaced or replenished. They are not succeeded. There has to be 12 before the church can start. God starts the church, lays the foundation of the church upon the shoulders of the 12 apostles. Church hasn't started yet. There needs to be 12 who are faithful. So with that background and that promise yet unfulfilled, let's go to Acts 1 and we'll go through the narrative of 15 through 26. Looking at the three last points here. 
point number two in your handout, as we look at verses 15, 16, 17, and 20, is the Scripture. The Scripture planned by God. Judas is going to be replaced, not because Peter thought it would be appropriate or that they missed a ministry leader or they needed another guy. Peter's going to replace, Peter and the apostles and Jesus are going to replace Judas because it is God's divine mandate through Scripture. Scripture must be fulfilled. Peter makes that clear. So let's look at verses 15 through 17 and 20. And at this time, what time? Well, they're in Jerusalem. They're all together. They're maybe in the upper room. There's 120 believers. There's the apostles and Mary and Peter's brothers and other faithful saints. And at this time, as they're praying, Peter stood up. There's a, an amazing transformation that takes place in Peter's character from before the resurrection till after the resurrection and up to this point, where Jesus had now appeared to Peter in a resurrected body countless times, had encouraged his faith. Peter has matured. Peter is ready to be the leader of the apostles with great courage. Instead of great cowardice that typified him before this time. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, the gathering of about 120 persons who were together in that upper room. And he said, so here's Peter taking initiative, Peter being the leader, the, the spokesperson of the saints, of the apostles of the early church. This theme will continue for the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. If you wanted a simple uh, outline of the book of Acts, it's Acts 1 through 12. The Apostle Peter's ministry, 13 through 28, the Apostle Paul's ministry, which is seamless. And here's what Peter said to those saints gathering. By the way, at this point, it's been 30, 40 days. Uh, losing Judas was absolutely devastating to the other 11 apostles, to those who hung out with the apostles during the course of Jesus' ministry. Absolutely devastating. So no doubt lingering in the back of their mind, although they have great joy that Jesus has risen, he's ascended into heaven, the promise is coming, yet they're human. So the lingering question is, well, what about Judas? Not only is he going to be replaced, but how in the world could that happen? Jesus, the Messiah, chose Judas. Did Jesus make a mistake? Did God make a mistake? Have God's plans been foiled? There was no greater travesty in the history of the world than what was entrusted to Judas to be hand-selected by the Savior to walk and talk and follow and have intimate fellowship with Jesus, the God-man, to be given such great privilege, the ability to do ministry, to preach, and even the ability to do miracles. And even with Jesus' last pronouncement of grace in the garden in which he was betrayed. And Judas threw it all away out of utter wicked self-centeredness. Wicked is the word that Peter's going to use in this text. When he betrayed Jesus, the sinless Son of God. And the apostle Judas, he was called an apostle. He was intimate in the group. 
He was a friend of the other 11. They were friends with him. We know from certain accounts in the Gospels that the other 11 apostles over the course of almost three years, they never suspected that Judas was a hypocritical phony. They thought he was real. They thought he was legitimate. He was entrusted with uh, the sacred privilege of handling all the money for the group. He was the treasurer of the apostles. They didn't have much money, but they trusted him. They trusted him up to the end. They didn't know this about Judas. So when Judas was betrayed, Jesus left their midst, abandoned the apostles, abandoned Jesus, killed himself, murdered himself through suicide. It was absolutely devastating to the apostles and all who were part of that group. Uh, This would be similar or parallel to somebody in your family who's close. Who is your friend, who you have fellowship with, who you know, who you love, who you serve with. He did ministry. Judas did ministry. Those are the words of Peter in this account. And then you get blindsided. They abandoned the faith. They turned their back on you. And you had no idea. They deceived you, and they were also self-deceived. And they undermine everything that you've been planning, everything that you've invested in, everything that you have been doing. That's what Judas did. Absolutely devastating. So you've got to commend Peter for this uh, amazing courage. What do we typically do as frail, weak humans when we face a difficult situation, we face a trial, we face uh, something devastating in our life? It is not uncommon to try to ignore it. It is not uncommon to uh, drown it or put it at arm's distance through all kinds of illegitimate means, ignoring it, pretend it never happened, using alcohol, drowning it with drugs, turning it, uh, uh, blinding yourself to it through self-absorption or wanting to believe in lies and deception. And and not going, taking the hard problems head on. So here's where you see God empowering already even Peter to be a courageous, selfless, God-appointed leader. It's one of the hardest things a good leader has to do is take difficult problems head on. And not be blinded by the emotion of it or the hurt of it. Staying objective, seeking God's will, seeking the scripture, seeking God through prayer, depending upon the spirit. That's what Peter does. It's amazing. So that's Peter. So he stands up as the courageous leader now that he has been prepped to be. And he says this in verse 16, brethren, he's not going to do anything according to a whim or what Peter thinks. Because Peter was inclined in his life and during the time of being trained by Jesus to do things according to his will, not Jesus' will, not according to the scripture. That was typical of Peter. He had great zeal, excitement, yet much presumption. Jesus many times had to slow him down and pull his chain and even rebuke him. But that's not the Peter here. Uh, He says, brethren, brothers and sisters is what that means. The scripture had to be fulfilled. So now Peter's operating by the book, the holy book, the Bible. He's been enlightened to understand Scripture now since the resurrection. Many times it was a fog to him, and yet now Peter has crystal clear thinking about God's Word. All those years of being trained in the synagogue and trained by Jesus and studying the Torah, memorizing the Old Testament, it all comes together now. It clicks. He understands it. He sees it. 
He was raised in the Psalms and never understood it, never understood the betrayal and the suffering of the Messiah. And now he sees it clearly and he tells them, brethren, with respect to Judas, the scripture had to be fulfilled. God's word had to be fulfilled. The Bible predicted what happened to Judas. It is not a surprise to almighty God. God is still on the throne. And he's given us very specific information for encouragement, for hope, and for what to do. What do we do? Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. That's just such an amazing statement. It is utterly profound. We can't even exhaust all the truth just mentioned by Peter. Peter is now preaching. He's being moved by the Spirit of God. He is speaking truth. He makes this amazing statement. The scripture has to be fulfilled. He's going to refer to two scripture passages, two verses in verse 20 of Acts chapter 1. He's going to quote from Psalm 69, which is an amazing psalm about the Messiah, much of it. And he's also going to quote from Psalm 109. So 69 and 109 are where those two quotes from that come from Peter. That's what Peter means. Uh, The scripture had to be fulfilled. Or today he would say, uh, brothers and sisters, Today before us, God is going to fulfill Old Testament prophecy like you've never seen before. And God is going to fulfill a verse out of Psalm 69 that was about the Messiah. And he's going to fulfill a verse out of Psalm 109, verse 8, about the Messiah. And these Psalms, as you know, were written by David, King David, 1000 B.C. And much of what is in the Psalm is about David as the king at the time. If you read those Psalms, they're called imprecatory Psalms. They are prayers. They are prayers that David wrote. They are prayers that David prayed We don't even know if David knew about uh, the nature of some of these messianic prophecies that were in there. But we know now because Peter's revealing it under being moved by the Holy Spirit to reveal this to the church. So David David was a prophet, by the way, in the next chapter in the book of Acts. uh, Acts makes it clear that David wasn't just a king, the greatest king of Israel, who loved God. David was a prophet of God. David spoke the word of God. And that's what he's doing here. And David wrote scripture that is the word of God. And Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 is scripture. Now, if you read uh, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, if it's like my Bible, my Bible says at the top, um, an imprecatory prayer by David. What's imprecatory? Imprecatory prayer, something that is imprecatory is where someone, a saint, a godly person, prays to God and asks God to uh, bring, mete out justice and vengeance On his enemies on the earth right now. David was allowed as the king of Israel, as the monarch of the theocracy, as the representative of Jehovah, as the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. David at times was allowed to justly, legitimately pray down, speak down imprecatory prayers, the wrath of God on David's enemies, Israel's enemies, and God's enemies. And you will see that in Psalm 69, Psalm 109. And you read this, you're like, wow, David seems like a very hateful man, an angry man, a vengeful man, a vindictive person. Christians shouldn't pray this way. Should we pray this way? This is very contrary to how Jesus taught when he said, someone hits you, turn the other cheek. So you need to understand Why these prayers are like that, why they are there, why David spoke these. He was moved by the Holy Spirit of God in history to pray these prayers. They were fulfilled by God, by the way, in the days of David. David was God's anointed. He was appointed by God to be a man of, or a warrior, to defend the people of God. So the imprecatory psalms, so should we be praying imprecatory psalms on the heads of our enemies today? I would say no. 
Number one, because we are not inspired or moved by the Holy Spirit of God the way David was. We are not the monarchs of Israel. These were fulfilled and are being fulfilled, and we follow the model of Jesus Christ today of how he wants us to deal with our personal enemies. It is. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. God hasn't changed his mind. God hasn't changed his character. God is still holy. But today, for the most part, for the Christian who walks by faith and not by sight, we live in Romans 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave room for the wrath of God. The wrath of God is already... We don't need to be pouring, asking, God, pour out your wrath on all the evil in the world. Guess what? It's already happening according to Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who forsake or subvert or suppress the truth of God, and they do it in unrighteousness. So God, you don't need to pray, God, pour out your wrath. It is being poured out. And John 3, verse 36 says the same thing. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe, actually it says, he who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. So you don't need to worry about unbelievers and God's wrath. God is dealing with unbelievers. His wrath is pushing down on them, on their conscience, giving them guilt, trying to woo them to repentance. So David wrote these. It's amazing. So the, the terminology here. So David wrote these Psalms. It says the scripture needs to be fulfilled. But the Bible is not just a book about man. Like the critics say, oh, the Bible's got, it's full of arrows. It's not reliable. It's just a man's book. No, it's not. It is a supernatural book. It is a divine book. It is the book of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, who is the creator, who is sovereign and all-powerful, who is perfect, who is truth, who never makes a mistake. The Holy, who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit of God wrote the Bible. And he used human vehicles to do it. And David was a finite, fallen sinner who God used to write flawless scripture. Amazing. God does that. That's, that's, that is incredibly gracious of God to do that. David was a pathetic sinner. You and I are pathetic sinners. And you know what? God will continue to use us to do great things. And it says the spirit of God produced this scripture. How? which the Spirit of God foretold by the mouth of David. The, the Spirit of God literally spoke through David. David wrote it down. So the Spirit speaks. He speaks through David. David writes it down. It becomes an inspired scripture in Psalm 69. Then Peter picks up Psalm 69, and then he preaches it. Then he, Peter is moved by the Holy Spirit, and then he explains greater insight into Psalm 69, and then he tells it to Luke, and then Luke writes it down. It's amazing. This is divine-inspired progressive revelation. As we get a fuller sense of the truth there, from Luke through Peter. So the Spirit of God is speaking through three fallen men to give us the Word of God that is flawless. That's inspiration. The inspiration of Scripture. And so this Scripture, uh, Peter goes on, the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas. God spoke about Judas. God was not surprised about Judas a thousand years before Judas lived. This is in God's plan. This is in his purview. He is sovereign over all things. He is the author of history from beginning to end. He's in charge of everything. He reigns on the throne. What great peace this gives to the believer. What great hope we have. No matter what goes on in life, God is on the throne. It doesn't matter what you have as a struggle in your life right now. You could say God is on the throne. God is on the throne. Psalm 115 verse 3. You know what it says? Basically, God is on the throne. In light of no matter what's going on in your life or in the world, 
God is on the throne. He reigns on high. And get this, it says he does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46.10 says that he is the author of history from beginning to end. Romans 8.28 says, no matter what comes your way, if you are a believer, you are a Christian, you love Jesus, you know God, you believe in him, God works all things together for good. All things together. Not all things are good because there are bad and evil, wicked things. God isn't calling bad things good in that verse. He will even take horrible, wicked, evil things and he will work those to good. God works all things together for good, specifically for those who know and love him, Christians. Again, how comforting is that? No matter what's going on in your life this week, what happened last week, what's coming ahead next week, if you're a believer, you can rest in the fact God is still on the throne. He is totally sovereign. He does as he pleases. He loves his people, and he will work all things together for good for you. That's our hope. That is our solid foundation, and that's what Peter finally understands. Then he goes on about Judas, verse 17, for Judas was counted among us. He was one of the 12. He was chosen by Jesus. As a matter of fact, chapter 1, verse 2, at the end of the verse in verse 2 in that same chapter, it says right there, Jesus chose the apostles. Jesus selected the apostles. And Peter's acknowledging that Jesus counted him. Jesus selected him. He received his portion. He had delegated responsibilities. He did it shoulder to shoulder with us. He shared in this ministry. He did ministry with us. Then he quotes the verses in verse 20, and here's what he said. There's a parenthesis there, but Peter goes on in verse 20. For it is written, here's what the Psalms say that are being fulfilled today in your hearing. Uh, Psalm 69 says, let his homestead be made desolate. Judas tried to buy a field with the 30 dirty pieces of silver, the 30 bloody pieces of silver that he got from the chief priest, and he wanted to buy a field. Well, he was convicted, or he felt guilty, actually. It wasn't a legitimate remorse. It wasn't full repentance. It was not a godly repentance. It was regret that he got caught. It was regret that he didn't know what to do. He didn't seek God's forgiveness when he got caught. It just said he felt remorse or guilt. He didn't know the forgiveness of God, and that's why he chose to commit suicide and kill himself, and that's what he did. He went out and he killed himself. He hung himself, probably hanging on a tree, and it says that his middle burst open. And then he ended up literally falling onto the ground onto the rocks where he was gashed to pieces. That's what Peter's going to tell, tell us. And that's what Matthew 27 says as well. So for he was counted among us, uh, he received his portion in this ministry. And yet the prophecies predicted that he would become desolate. One of our own would become desolate. One of our own would lose everything he had. That was a prophecy about Judas. And then the second prophecy is hundred Psalm 109 verse 8. Uh, and let no man dwell in that land that Judas tried to buy, that actually the chief priests ended up buying, and it was blood money. So they said, uh, we'll buy this in Judas's name, and we'll just, uh, we don't want anything to do with it. It's dirty. It's unclean. We won't go there, but we'll let strangers go in that plot of land. And that plot of land came the potter's field or the bloody field. Nobody wanted to do with it. It was a pure Jew, and that's what became of Judas. It was just always a visual, wretched reminder of Judas's compromise, public, visual reminder of a detailed, fulfilled prophecy, that field. And then he goes on, uh, Psalm 109, in his office, let another man 
take. We, we need to fill up the office. This is by God's mandate. We need 12. We need 12. We need to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus gave about the 12 needs to be fulfilled. So we need to choose another apostle. So the scripture needed to be fulfilled. Let's go on to the next point. Verses 18 and 19, the parenthesis there that Luke adds to kind of clarify things for us, and that's the suicide. The suicide driven by guilt. That's why Judas killed himself. By the way, I mentioned that Jesus was the one who chose the 12 apostles. He prayed all night long, says Luke and Matthew to the Father. And then after he prayed all night long, then he selected 12 out of hundreds of disciples to be the apostles, to fulfill God's plan. When he chose Judas, he didn't make a mistake. God had a plan to use Judas. And Judas fulfilled God's plan to a T because Jesus came the first time to die. And the way God determined that God would die is that, or that Jesus would die is that Jesus would be betrayed by one of his own, by a close friend. So God put that in prophecy. He put it in Zechariah chapter 11. He put it in Psalm 69, a thousand years before it ever happened. Part of God's grand plan so that Jesus could die for sinners was with, that he would be betrayed by one of his own, by a close one, by somebody very entrusted to him. There were very few people that knew Jesus's itinerary. They didn't know where he would go to pray out on that mount at special times. Judas did. He had to be somebody close to Jesus. He had to be somebody trusted by the apostles. God knew what he was doing. That was part of God's plan. And it was be, through Judas, God the Father could accomplish, accomplish his plan so that Jesus might be given over and crucified, condemned to death. So it fulfilled God's plan. Judas seemed to be a believer. He acted like he was loyal to Jesus. He acted like he cared for people. In John chapter 12, when Mary was pouring, or the woman was pouring expensive oil all over Jesus, the one that got incensed and spoke out and said, why are you wasting all of this precious oil that amounted to thousands of dollars? And it was Judas. And Judas said, this should have been kept, sold, and that money given to the poor. Liar. Because in John 12, John says he was a liar. And says, and here's John's words. Judas, Judas didn't say this because he cared for the poor. John the apostle writes in chapter 12. He said this because he was a thief. Then consider what Jesus said in John chapter 6, not long before that, in the same gospel. Jesus is out preaching. He has a high standard. Some of his disciples bail in the crowd. The apostles remain. Apparently, they remain loyal and faithful. And yet Jesus knows. And he, so he turns from the crowds who are beginning to leave because Jesus is high calling and high standing. And he looks at his 12 apostles and he says, even some of you, I have chosen you. You did not cho choose me. Some of you believe of the 12. And then he said this, but one of you is a devil. Was Judas ever saved? No. Did Jesus know it? Yes. I've chosen one of you. All of you believe, but one of you is a devil. And even goes on to say, and one of you will betray me. That could have been the midpoint of Jesus' ministry. This is an, over a year before he, Judas did what he did. The other apostles, they had no idea. So scripture says that 
Judas from the beginning, he was lost. He was never saved. He was a phony. He was fake. He was self-deceived. He deceived his team. Couldn't deceive Jesus. But he was a thief. He was a devil. And in this passage, Peter calls him wicked. Verse 18. That's who he was. That's very helpful because um, some Christians think, well, can you lose your salvation? No, you can't lose your salvation. Well, this person, they, they believed in Jesus and they walked an aisle when they were seven and they lived their life for 15, 20 years as an apparent Christian. They did ministry. They went to church. They, and then they just bailed on the faith when they were 52. Did they lose their salvation? No, they did not lose their salvation. They're just like Judas. Probably self-deceived more than anything. And probably most of Jesus's or Judas's three years, he, he didn't realize he was self-deceived. That's why it's self-deception. That is frightening. You actually think you're a believer. You think you are saved. You think you're in good standing with the Holy God. That's what Matthew 7 is all about. And then on Judgment Day, some people don't find out until Judgment Day, at the end of the age, before the throne of Christ, when all is exposed. They said, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name. We prophesied in your name. We believed in you. And Jesus said, I never knew you. They were never saved in the first place. That is Judas. Sadly, that's many people throughout history. Sadly, that's many people in churches today. Self-deceived. They think they're Christians. God knows their heart. They're not. So number three, the suicide driven by guilt. Verses 18 and 19. So Luke writes this. He said, now this man, Judas, acquired a field through the chief priest with the price of his wickedness, wickedness, evil, utter, abject, evil. 30 pieces of silver, 30 shekels of silver, went out and hung himself. And at some point, he fell headlong. He fell down. He splatted. He got smashed. Uh, Luke gets graphic. Judas burst open in the middle of his body, and all of his bowels gushed out. Now, Matthew didn't say this as he was writing to the Jews. The Jews didn't need to know this. And many of the Jews were firsthand witnesses. They, they knew what happened. The Gentiles that Luke is writing to 25 years later, they don't have any, Who's Judas? What happened? And so we're getting new information we never heard before of how Judas died. Verse 19, it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. Everybody heard about it. They knew who Jesus was. They knew who his 12 apostles were. They knew about Judas and what he did with the chief priests who ran the town and ran the city and ran the nation. And the awful betrayal that happened and the, and the just deserts that ended up happening to Judas, they heard about the just grisly, graphic, that dirty blood of field that no Jew wants to have anything to do with it. So everybody in Jerusalem knew what, what had happened so that in their own language, the field was called uh, Hakel Dama, that is the field of blood. Where's Judas today? He went to hell. He was called the son of perdition. Jesus said that in Luke twenty-two, twenty-two. Basically, Jesus said, it, woe to the man that betrays the Son of Man. It better that he not even had been born. Jesus said that before he was betrayed by Judas. It would be better that Judas had never been born. Because in Luke twenty-two twenty-two, Jesus referred to the predetermined plan that a Judas would betray Jesus. So the fact that Judas would be betrayed Jesus was planned before the foundation of the world by Almighty God. Yet, in that same verse, Jesus says, yeah, it was planned, it's in prophecy, it's part of God's plan, God knew who was going to do it, Jesus knew who was going to do it. Nevertheless, 
Judas is still culpable. He still uh, had volition. He still made a decision. He still operated out of a heart of absolute, utter wickedness. He is responsible. So you've got divine sovereignty on one hand. God planned this before the foundation of the world. Divine sovereignty. And you've got human responsibility on the other hand. Judas is culpable. He is responsible. He made a decision. He was driven by self-interests. He knew what he was doing. Well, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility in your finite fallen mind? We don't. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, said God in Isaiah 55. That's just, it is a mystery. It is amazing. And again, we believe it by faith. And that's what happened with Judas. Before we get to the last point there, look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Just one chapter later. So this is very close in proximity on the day of Pentecost. As Peter's preaching to a crowd of thousands, really, during the feast day, could be 10,000 plus people that are there in the crowd, 10,000 pilgrims and Jews from all over celebrating Pentecost. So Peter's preaching to them publicly, and then he's concluding a sermon. He said, men of Israel, he's going to give them a rebuke. Men of you Jews, you Jews, listen to these words, especially the ones in Jerusalem. Uh, in Galilee, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles. Jesus went around for three years and he did signs, wonders, and miracles. He was God's man. And you knew it. You saw it. Attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, they couldn't argue the case. Peter was right. And then he says this amazing verse in verse 23. Peter says, this man, this Jesus was delivered up. Jesus was arrested and crucified and died. Why? By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. There it is. God planned the death of Christ, the Father. In eternity past. So God did it. Who had Jesus killed? God the Father. When was it planned? In eternity past. That's on one hand. And then there's from the human perspective. <laughs> You're not off the hook, guys, you Jews, where Jesus did miracles. And then uh, the last week you shook your fist and said, crucify him, crucify him. I'm talking to you. You. Verse 23, you nailed to a cross. God the Father planned his execution. You carried out the execution. You even planned it. You planned it for three years, some of you, screaming for Jesus' blood. You nailed, you Jewish Men nailed Jesus to a cross by the hands of godless men, that's the Romans, and put him to death. So there in one verse, you've got God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and they go together. And they're resolved only in the mind of God, and we believe it by faith. So let's go on to the last point. That's the selection, the qualified apostle, verses 21 to 26. We'll close with this. If I were to ask you, are there apostles today? I might get a variance of answers. Some of you might. Disagree with other people's answers? Are there apostles today? Well, I challenge you go to a Christian bookstore, look at all the books come out, and you'd have to say, well, apparently so, because there's a lot of people who wrote books in that Christian bookstore who call themselves apostle. Really? There is a, a large burgeoning movement in evangelical Christianity today. Here in the state of California is the hub and the headquarters. It's the apostolic movement. It's a new one. Started about 10 plus years ago. And it's advocating that God through the third wave of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, has reinstated his men and women called apostles. And he's doing a great work like never before. Really. 
So many Christians would argue that there are apostles today, and here Peter says, no, there, there aren't because there are qualifications to be an apostle. So verses 21 to 26 is the selection of that 12th apostle, and he had to be qualified. And there were specific qualifications, so let me give those to you as we go through and see what Peter says about the qualifications. Peter says in verse 21, it is therefore necessary, still talking to the 120, it is necessary. In other words, uh, it is commanded by God. It actually has to happen. This is not an option. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So here's the first qualification. We're going to choose another apostle, the 12th, to replace Judas. And the first qualification is he needs to be a man or a male. Why do I say that? Because that's what verse 21 says. It is necessary. It has to be this way. That of the men, the word men there is plural, aner, and it means only a male. It never refers to a woman. It can't refer to a woman. Anthropos is the word that we refer to males and females. This is specifically a man, a husband, a male. So the apostle, one of the qualifications of an apostle had to be a male. Number two qualification. Um, says, well, not just any man, because there were many men in that group of 120. There were many men who came to believe in Jesus in Jerusalem during the early church. Men. But many of these men who came to believe in Jesus didn't follow or hang out with or they were not associated with the apostles for three years during Jesus's ministry. So that's the second qualification. This man had to be associated with the apostles during their three-year ministry as they were with Christ. So Qualification number one had to be male. Qualification number two had to be an associate of an apostle during Jesus' ministry. Qualification number three, well, how much during the ministry of Jesus? Could they have come in the last year, the last six months, uh, the last three months of Jesus' public ministry, start hanging out with the apostles? Are they qualified? No, they are not qualified. Third qualification, verse 22, they had to be around with the apostles beginning with the baptism of John. That's when it began. Beginning with John the Baptist. The time of Jesus' baptism until the day he was taken up from us. So to be qualified, an apostle had to be there since John the Baptist's ministry, the baptism of Jesus, till the ascension of Jesus. Three years. That's the third qualification. Qualification number four, to be an apostle. One of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. Number four is whoever this man was that was associated with the apostles from the time of John the Baptist to the ascension also had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. If he was not an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection before the day of Pentecost, he was not qualified to be an apostle. So that basically disqualifies anybody living on planet Earth today because nobody today was an associate with the apostles who was with the apostles on Earth from baptism to ascension, and none of them witnessed the resurrection of Christ prior to Pentecost. It's a closed group. Qualification number five. Verse 23, and they put forward two men. So uh, two men... Could be qualified. Joseph called Barsabbas, son of the Sabbath, who was also called Justice. That was his Latin name. And Matthias. So you got Joseph and Matthias. But they can't have two. They need one because they need 12 apostles. So we have a dilemma. So one of these guys needs to be chosen. The other is not. So what do they do? They prayed. How wise. So they prayed. You need wisdom. That's what the apostles did. They prayed. As a matter of fact, this is a prayer I believe to Jesus. Here's one of the rare examples in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where they pray to Jesus. Because they call him Lord, and throughout the rest of the book of Acts, Jesus is referred to as Lord. The Father usually is referred to as God. So they said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of men, Jesus is the heart knower of all people. Show us, Lord, which one of these two you 
have chosen. Notice it's a divine appointment. You have, these are the same verb used in chapter 1, verse 2, where it said that Jesus chose the first 12. And here, the same verb used, he's going to choose the 12th who will replace Judas. Jesus, please choose which man you want to replace, Judas, Matthias, or Joseph. Jesus answers that prayer. Verse 25, to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. By the way, qualification number five is that if you're an apostle, you have to be one of the 12. There's only 12. So there are no vacancies. You have to be one of the 12 to be an apostle. And he becomes one of the 12. So that's their prayer. Peter prays. God answers that prayer. God uses divine revelation to answer the prayer through the apostles. Verse 26, and they drew lots or they threw lots or they cast lots. Uh, this was introduced in the book of Leviticus, the Urim and the Thummim that the high priest had, two stones. Uh, it was used in the book of Numbers. It was used in the Old Testament times to make decisions. It's used in Proverbs 16.33, a couple times in the book of Proverbs. So this is a way that God gave divine revelation to his people to answer a question that he doesn't use anymore. This is never again used in the New Testament. This is never again used once the church starts. This was never used, as far as we know, during the Gospels. They didn't need lots. It's just, hey, ask Jesus. So they drew lots or threw lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. God answered their prayer. God gave them divine revelation. The apostles had the ability to exercise miracles and they, God gave them divine revelation, and they wrote down the New Testament. That was a unique ability of being an apostle. Also, to be an apostle, you had to have the spiritual gift of apostle because apostleship is listed by Paul as a spiritual gift. So many qualifications. Now we're going to see for the rest of the book, very exciting of how God uses these 12 apostles literally to lay the foundation of the church and unleash it to the ends of the earth. We thank God for choosing to use fallen finite, weak sinners like the apostles because we are the same. And let me close with this amazing story with these three great thoughts about God. Acts is a book of history of what people did in the early church. But even more than that, it's a, a really a book and a story about who God is and what God did. And here are just three very practical things we can take away from just what we read. Truths about God that are still true and apply to us today for those who know him. Judas did good um, during those three years. He did social work. He cared for the poor. He did ministry. He preached the gospel. He did miracles. Yet in the end, all the while, God knew he was wicked and of the devil. And the truth there is that only God knows the hearts of men, which should give us caution and pause to jump too quickly to judge people, particularly their motives and their heart. We don't know. We can judge their words and their actions and deal with it accordingly. We can't judge people's motives, thoughts, or heart. And that's why James in his book says, don't do that, Christian. Reserve judgment for God alone. So what's the practical application? Don't try to judge people's hearts. Don't do that. God is the only one who knows heart. That's comforting. It's comforting. It can be comforting because when you think people are judging you unfairly, you just entrust yourself to God. God, you know my heart. You know my motives. You know my intent. I'm going to trust you with this if I'm being wronged. Uh, point number two, Peter, who was once weak, 
a coward, major compromiser, presumptuous, dramatically and radically changed. He became courageous, bold, a man of faith, and was used by God to do great things. That's also true of all of us. God wants to do that. If you're a Christian, God's put the Spirit of God in you, has given you supernatural power, and in obedience, God will use us to do great things as well. What a fantastic privilege that is we have as Christians. And finally, number three, and I've already hinted at this, uh, one of the 12 apostles betrayed Jesus. Many people thought he foiled the plan, undermined Jesus. It was the most heinous thing done in the history of the world. And yet God used Judas's evil, and he used it for good. What's the problem of evil? Well, God knows about evil. God allowed for evil. Get this. God uses evil for his glory. That's the answer to the problem of evil. What is the most evil act ever committed in the history of the world? The death of Jesus. The most evil act in the history of the world, the death of Christ. What is the most blessed, loving act in the history of the world? The death of Jesus. The same answer. That is the solution to the problem of evil. God works all things together for good for those who know him and love him. And may that be our heart's desire, our prayer, and meditating on our mind this day and the rest of our week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him for these great truths. Father, we do thank you for our time together, the privilege to look at your word, to be reminded of true history, to see your sovereign hand in people's lives, to be reminded that you reign on the throne, to be reminded that you care for your people, to be reminded that you answer prayer, to be reminded, Lord Jesus, of your sacrifice for sinners, your resurrection, and that you reign on high and that you're in control of all history. We take comfort in that. That is our solid foundation for living. And God, fill us with the great reminder that you work all things together for your glory and for our good. We love you and we commit this day to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.